0: Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to uh, John chapter 20, we will be considering the resurrection of our Lord Jesus this morning from this wonderful text. I wanted to start out with a question, and that is, uh, what does Easter mean to you? Uh, it may mean, um, especially if you're a kid, it may mean. Uh, chocolate bunnies and and egg hunts. That's what it means for you. Maybe uh, maybe it means a good meal at at, at grandma's house. Uh, Maybe it means uh, one of the few days a year that that you go to church, to be honest, that you show up for this wonderful celebration of Easter and maybe Christmas. Maybe it just kind of means spring break is here. It's on. It's kind of the signal for you that spring break is here. Or maybe... You have more of a a theological answer. You say, clearly, Easter is, is a remembrance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that's good, and that's true. But what I want us to ask is, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to your life? What does it mean to how you live every day? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ affect Your daily life. Well, I think this this text from John's Gospel is a great one for us to consider as we think about that, as we get it into our hearts. What is the meaning now for us? Let's look at the first verse, verse 19 of our text. Says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now it's hard for us, especially when we're just jumping into this text, to get a feel for how stunning and shocking this moment is. Just days earlier, the disciples watched as Jesus was crucified on the cross by by expert executioners, Roman soldiers who, who did this for a living. They watched him bleed out and breathe his last breath. They knew his lifeless body had been sealed in the tomb. But earlier that day, some of them went to the tomb and found it empty. And Mary said that she had met the risen Jesus. And now it's evening, and they are hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And no doubt the room is is abuzz with the events of the day and the rumors of the day, excited chatter about the empty tomb and the placement of the grave clothes and the supposed encounter with Jesus. And then suddenly, Jesus is in the room. The idea is that he is suddenly just standing there in in their presence. He miraculously appeared. He materialized before them. And he says to them, peace be with you. Now in one sense, this is the appropriate thing to say because it was the common Jewish greetings, shalom. It's how they said hello to each other. But it's also very appropriate considering he probably just scared them to death. He just suddenly appeared in the room. Imagine you're, you're having dinner and suddenly Jesus is there. They probably needed a little calming peace. But what we need to note is that Jesus is actually speaking at a much deeper level when he says this. He isn't just saying hi. He isn't just saying calm down. He's actually proclaiming to him them the first implication, the first result of his resurrection for their lives. And that is peace, real peace. He says it three times in the passage. He said it in verse 19, peace be with you. He says it in verse 21. Again, he said to them, peace be with you. He says it in verse 26, towards the end. And he came and stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. You see, what we need to understand is this word shalom, although it is that common greeting, it has a history. It goes all the way back in the Old Testament to their their first messianic expectations. The Jews expected the Messiah to bring in God's kingdom when he came and thus bring peace. And so with every greeting, they looked forward to it. It was spoken when they said to each other, shalom, they're saying, we look forward to the peace, the peace of God's kingdom. It was spoken in hope and expectation and anticipation of a real messianic peace. When Jesus came into the world when he was born, the angels proclaimed peace on earth. And Jesus, as he started his ministry, proclaimed the kingdom of God had come and promised his disciples that he would give them peace in this world. So you can imagine the relief of the disciples in this moment. After the shock of the moment, the reassuring sense of calm that must have filled the room as they realized it was Jesus. Up to this point, all had, was lost. Their master, their Lord, their Savior had been murdered. The one who had promised salvation was dead? Three days dead? Where's his salvation? Where's the kingdom he promised? He was their protector and their provider, but he was gone, murdered. And they were sure they were next. That's why they were hiding in that room with the doors locked. I'm sure especially since Jesus body had gone missing from the tomb that they expected the authorities to be breaking down the door any minute to round up the crazy followers who had obviously stolen it but now jesus is alive he is back and he proclaims shalom the shalom they've been waiting for all their lives and i imagine the fear just evaporating from the room jesus resurrection brings peace to To fearful hearts real peace and it is the same today that hasn't changed this is where the resurrection can have real traction in our lives now if you're truly his disciple because we live in a world that is not at peace we live in a world of fear and our lives are often dominated and run by fear if we're honest We have hearts that are full of unrest and anxiety and worry. So there is no real peace, is there? There's no peace in our society. Everywhere we look, there's political division and racial tension and acts of terror. And the media tends to exacerbate it with its hype. There's no domestic peace. We have amber alerts and childhood trauma And physical and sexual and abuse hotlines and skyrocketing suicide rates. There's no personal peace. That's why we have so many kinds of therapists and psychotropic medications and people going on meditation retreats. Fear rules our world and it often enslaves our lives. Our hearts are full of it. Our minds are preoccupied with it. And I know many of us here, if we're honest, can, can relate to this. We know the fears that kind of haunt us, that we struggle with. Why? Why does fear rule our world and us? I was, I was reading a, a book about fear, and the author posits that it all goes back to death. He says the one thing behind all our fears is the primal universal fear of death. That's what the disciples were really afraid of that night. If the Romans were going to come and get them, that they might die. All fear is ultimately fear of suffering and death. If you think about it, think of fear of war. Why? Because you might suffer and die. Fear of aging could lead to suffering and eventual death. Fear of flying, it it might bring suffering and death. Fear of heights, you could fall and die. Fear of snakes, they could bite you and you die. So you think, well, then the answer is just to not fear, right? We just won't fear. Just don't fear death. Just don't be afraid of death and then it'll all go away. After all, death is just going to sleep and then you don't exist anymore and there's no more pain. It's just eternal bedtime. So just don't fear death. That's what people try to tell themselves. That's how they try to deal with their fear, just kind of accept death as nothingness and be at peace with it. But here's the thing. It never seems to work. It never seems to work. Because the Bible tells us we're right to fear death. We should be afraid. Because death is the result of our sin. It's the result of our separation from God because of our sin. We have sinned against our creator. We are not at peace. Our death will result in facing judgment before God because of our sin. He's holy. He cannot look on sin. And standing before him won't go well. And all of us as sinners and rebels, the Bible says we all are We face a bleak eternity cut off from our creator, from his grace, from anything good because of it. And we know this is true in our souls. That's why we fear. But even in light of this, this very real, this very right, this very just fear, Jesus stands before the disciples and proclaims peace. How does he do that well notice his posture as he says it. it's very important Jesus posture here look back at verse 19 with me and we'll read through to uh, 21 it says this on the evening of the day the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood amongst them and said peace be with you when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. He didn't say peace like this. He didn't say peace, everybody. He said peace. The peace he's offering is the peace that that he wanted at the cross. He shows them the scars on his hands. He paid for our sins. He bought our forgiveness. He took our punishment, our hell for us. And he conquered death. That's what he's promising them. That he has given them real peace before God. It's what he promised before. That he would give his life as a sacrifice for us. That we all may believe. And now he stands with the disciples Showing them his hand, standing right in front of them, alive. His resurrection means his offering of peace was and is real. He did it. He took our death for us. He won eternal life. This is what Easter means for us. Peace. Real, full-bodied ultimate peace, so you can put away your fear and your anxiety and your unrest. We have resurrection life. Think about that next time you're anxious. Resurrection life. What's to fear? Are you remembering this in your life every day? Are you living in the Easter reality of the peace that Jesus has given us in the resurrection If not, I would say, come to church more. Get involved in a small group. That's what we do. We remind each other of these wonderful gospel truths. Because it's so easy to forget. But there's another truth here. Another result of of the resurrection for our daily lives besides peace. And that is proclamation. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Jesus commissions them now as his representatives to go out. He sends them out as he was sent by the Father to bring the good news, the gospel good news to the world, and he empowers them with his spirit to do it. And yes, verse 23 does seem a bit weird. It seems like he's giving them authority to forgive sins or to hold back forgiveness, but the Greek tense of the text is the perfect tense. It's a completed action with continuing results. It would be better translated, whoever you forgive has been forgiven. Whoever you withhold forgiveness from, it's already been withheld. The idea is that as they proclaim the gospel, they aren't granting forgiveness or denying it by their own authority, but they're recognizing God's work as people respond in faith or reject the truth. They are now the very instruments of... Of God's salvation work in the world, but empowered by His very Spirit as they go out proclaiming His resurrection. It's kind of a foretaste of of the Pentecost moment, right? That's gonna happen in Acts when the Spirit comes down on all God's people because Jesus is risen and He sends His Spirit down upon them and they begin proclaiming the gospel. This is a very real result of Jesus' resurrection, my friends. Not only do we have real peace, but we're empowered to go out by his spirit to proclaim his good news to the world. In the Old Testament, certain individuals, right, certain leaders, certain prophets would get filled with the spirit to proclaim the truth. But now in Christ, because he's risen, he sent his spirit in all of us to proclaim that truth to the world. And man, did the early Christians do it, the early church, didn't they? Those cowering disciples who were hiding in the upper room when the Spirit came upon them, they went out and proclaimed the gospel boldly to the world, that he was risen from the dead. They did it till people killed them for it. They did it so effectively that we're here today celebrating the resurrection of our Savior. What a privilege. What a purpose to have. Is this a resurrection reality in your life? The proclamation. Jesus, risen from the dead. Now, I want to say, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, uh, this is all interesting and it's uh, kind of nice for, for you Christians, um, but I just can't really believe this stuff. I wish I could. I, I, it would be nice to have such peace and, and, and purpose, but I just, I just can't buy it. This resurrection stuff sounds awesome, but it's, it's a fairy tale. It doesn't happen. If that's you, well, there's something here for you in this text. Because as we read on in this text, we are reminded there is one disciple who feels exactly the same way as you. Because he missed it. Look at verse 24 with me. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Wow. Thomas missed the moment. Think of that. There's a lot of big moments we miss in life sometimes, right? Maybe you're at a baseball game and you go get a hot dog and then, you know, they hit the home run and you miss it. Last night, uh, my sister stepped out for the last few minutes of the Gonzaga game because she couldn't take the tension anymore. But actually, I think she couldn't take the tension I was creating with all my yelling. Um, But this is so much bigger. Thomas missed Jesus resurrection appearance. We don't know where he was. Maybe he just needed some alone time after the horrible events of the cross. Maybe he was just out picking up dinner for the rest of the guys and he came in, right, just a little bit later and said, hey, did I miss anything? And then the disciples start telling him excitedly about what happened and how Jesus appeared and what he said. And then Thomas starts asking all his questions. And then there's the awkward silence when both Thomas and the disciples realize he is not Believing them. Imagine the tension in the, mo- in the room in that moment. These are your best buddies, your best friends in the world, your comrades, but this is just too much what they were saying. And then Thomas said it. He said it. He lays down the challenge, he speaks from the depths of his hearts. Those words that will seal him in all of history as the patron saint of all skeptics and cynics to be affectionately known as Doubting Thomas. Verse 25. So the, uh, see here, verse, is it verse 25? Yeah, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe man, I am thankful for Thomas, aren't you? I'm glad he was late. I'm glad he spoke those honest, direct words. Because as we read on and see Jesus interact with him, we learn that the final result of the resurrection that John wants us to see, and that is there is hope for skeptics and cynics. The resurrection means peaceful hearts and and proclamation courage for Christians, but it also means there is hope for the skeptical and cynical person. And if that's you, there is hope. Thomas is a no-nonsense realist, no-religious talk, just-give-me-the-facts guy, isn't he? Note how in our text, he doesn't say to them, Hey, guys, I really want to believe you, but I just need to see him for myself, and then I'm sure I'll believe I'm sure that's what will happen, no, he says, unless I see him, unless I stick my fingers in the nail holes in his hands and reach into the wound in his side, I will never believe. He's not messing around. People today say, you know, ancient people, they were just easy to convince because they were so superstitious and unscientific and they were easily, you know, fooled by miraculous claims. Not true. Thomas is an empiricist. He wants the facts. He wants to see and touch, give him the evidence. It's, it's admirable in a way. We would call that a healthy skepticism. We encourage our kids to think critically, right? They need, they need it to be a skeptic, to survive our society with all its infomercials and false advertising. I don't know if you've noticed if you raised your kids, but they all go through the through this stage when they're about, I don't know, eight or something, where they start picking up on the infomercials on TV, but they don't have that filter, so they just believe them. So they come to me, and they're like, Dad, I know a way you can lose weight. It's just four easy payments. It's, we can get a complete set of knives free. And we tell our kids, don't believe it. Nothing is for free. Read the fine print. Skeptical. It's good. It's smart. But the problem is, combined with a sinful hard heart, that healthy skepticism can quickly become a closed-minded cynicism. It can quickly become a mind that instead of saying, Hey, I wonder if that's true, let me let me look at the facts again. I've never seen anything like it, but it could be true. Why would my friends lie about this? I I really want to believe. Instead of saying that, we say, that can't be true because I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. In fact, I won't believe it until my terms are met my way. That's Thomas. He's the modern man. Are you a healthy skeptic or are you a closed-minded cynic? So back to the text. You see, the amazing thing that we realize as we write on this story is that Jesus was listening when Thomas made this challenge. He had left the room, but he was still there. It's like when, you know, you're speaking about somebody and then you suddenly realize they're actually there. Jesus is there and he hears Thomas and he takes Thomas's dare. He takes him up on it. Look at verse 26 with me. Eight days later, so a week later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus stood, came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. So it's, it's a repeat for Thomas. And then he said to Thomas, Hey, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So do you think Thomas uh, did it? I imagine that moment I might be like, that's okay, it's good, I see you. (laughs) But I think Jesus is probably, no, no, go ahead, put your finger in here. Whatever the case, the moment has its effect on Thomas, and he responds with this confession. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. It's an incredibly concise, clear statement of belief. Not only is Thomas proclaiming Jesus deity, God in the flesh, he's saying Jesus is his Lord, his master, the one in charge of his life. It's a statement of relationship. It's personal. It's a statement of submission, bowing his knee. It's it's everything. It's what Christianity is all about, knowing Jesus, and, and not just about him, but him. The risen Christ as your God, the Lord of your life, your master. You see, when this happens in your life by faith, the scars on his hands you realize were for you. And the peace he made with the Father at the cross becomes yours. And the life he acquired for eternity is yours. And the hope and joy of his salvation becomes a reality in your life now. You see, Thomas, the patron saint of cynics, has become the model of a true believer. I love this whole scene, not only because a skeptic, the ultimate skeptic, gets saved, but because of what Jesus says to him in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Jesus said, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus doesn't congratulate Thomas on on his confession. He actually sort of rebukes him. He's saying, Thomas, you should have believed. You should have believed in the first place. And he is letting every skeptic know from that moment all the way down to us that it's possible. It's possible to believe without seeing. And you're blessed if you do it, he says. Think about that. It's an attractive option, isn't it? If you're skeptical, a cynic. You don't, have, you don't have to be enslaved by your skeptical, cynical heart. You can choose to trust and believe. There's nothing wrong with evidence. That's what John is all about in this book. If you look at verse 30, at the end of the look at look at verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other things other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. He says, look, I wrote all these signs down as evidence to, to convince you. He's testified to all these things, but ultimately Jesus is saying, you are blessed if you will simply choose to trust Him and believe. Why? Because He has indeed risen, because it's true. See you can spend your life in unbelief, wallowing in your skeptical, cynical pride, looking for that ultimate proof, kind of holding that up as a, you know, you're the ultimate skeptic, and you're just missing out. Or you can believe, you can choose to trust. Jesus and receive his salvation and his life and his peace and have it now blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed let me tell you every Christian here this morning including those who are about to be baptized is a testimony to this reality none of us has ever seen Jesus with our eyes never touched his resurrection body but we know his resurrection life we know his peace his spirit has worked on our hearts softened our hard hearts and we've responded in faith and been saved maybe he's working on you this morning if he is I want to say to you respond repent repent Ask him for forgiveness. Receive his salvation. Receive resurrection life. It's possible. It's real. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the grave. That's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for sending your son and proclaiming peace to the world. We thank you for solving that problem inside us that we can't do anything about, that sin that separates, that causes fear of death and judgment. Thank you for solving it in your son as he took our death Our sin, all upon him at the cross, took our judgment and won new life. Lord, help us to trust him, to know him and his salvation, to know resurrection life, and to proclaim him to the world. We pray these things in his blessed name. Amen.